From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live in Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, we're bringing you something a little different. There's a great film podcast called Classic Movie Muss, where Max Brill spends each episode breaking down a different movie, often with a guest. I went on the show recently to talk 12 Angry Men, a movie that just slays me. So smart, so well-written and plotted with deep character study and works really well as a response to Trump and the times we're living in, even though it came out in 1957. So, we're going to put up that episode for you now. I had a lot of fun doing it, but apologies in advance for my voice. I had a terrible cold. My girlfriend thinks I sounded like Harvey Firestein. Afterwards, I literally couldn't make a sound, like a cartoon character with laryngitis, which had never happened to me before. Anyway, hope you dig the show. Subscribe to Classic Movie Muss if you do like it. And we'll be back real soon with more episodes of To Live in Dialogue. Coming up, we have Richard Curtis, the writer of Fordings and a Funeral and Love Actually, James Patterson, the best-selling author of all time, Dan Pink, another best-selling author who has a lot to say about how writers should organize their schedules, and a bunch more. So, see you soon. I'm Max Barrill, and this is Classic Movie Musts, where every week we break down a classic movie while looking to provide artistic insight and historical context. At the very least, we'll talk about what makes these movies classics. Classic Movie Musts releases every Friday, ready to complement your weekend movie viewing plans. Classic Movie Musts is supported by listeners like you. If you want to help support the show, first, thank you so much. And second, head on over to patreon.com slash classic movie musts. Every Patreon subscriber earns cool perks and ways to engage with the show, including the opportunity to vote every month on a movie they'd like to hear discussed on the show. All it takes is $1 per month. A huge thank you to our current Patreon subscribers. You make the show possible. You can read about all our support tiers and their rewards over at patreon.com slash classic movie musts. Thank you for joining me this week as we discuss Sidney Lumet's 12 Angry Men. In this episode, during our feature presentation, we welcome screenwriter, professor, and podcaster Aaron Tracy to the show to break down 12 Angry Men. But first, let's get into this week's opening credits. Our film this week is 12 Angry Men, which was directed by Sidney Lumet and was released in 1957. 12 Angry Men stars Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb. In a New York County courthouse, the judge is instructing a jury who are to deliberate the case of an 18-year-old male from a slum who is on trial for allegedly stabbing his father to death. If there is any reasonable doubt, they are to return a verdict of not guilty. If found guilty, he will receive a death sentence. In a preliminary vote, all jurors vote guilty except juror number eight, played by Henry Fonda, who argues that the accused deserves some deliberation. This irritates some of the other jurors, 
who are impatient for a quick deliberation, especially juror number seven, who has tickets to that evening's Yankees game, and juror 10, who demonstrates blatant prejudice against people from the slums. Juror 8 questions the accuracy and reliability of the only two witnesses, and the prosecution's claim that the murder weapon, a common switchblade of which he possesses an identical copy, was rare. Juror 8 argues that he cannot vote guilty because reasonable doubt exists. Conceding that he has merely hung the jury, Juror 8 suggests a secret ballot from which he will abstain. He states that if all the jurors are still agreed, he will acquiesce to their decision. The ballot reveals one not guilty vote. Juror 9 reveals that it was he that changed his vote, agreeing that there should be some discussion. Juror 8 argues that the noise of a passing train would have obscured the verbal threat that one of the witnesses claims to have heard the accused tell his father, I'm going to kill you. Juror 5 then changes his vote. Juror 11 also changes his vote, believing the defendant would not likely have tried to retrieve the murder weapon from the scene if it had been cleaned of fingerprints. Juror 8 also points out that people who say, I'm going to kill you, do not often literally mean it. Jurors 5, 6, and 8 question the witness's claim to have seen the defendant fleeing 15 seconds after hearing the father's body hit the floor since he was physically incapable of reaching an appropriate vantage point in time, having once suffered a stroke. An angry juror number three, played by Lee J. Cobb, shouts that they are letting him slip through our fingers and that he's got to burn. Juror eight accuses him of being a sadistic public avenger. Juror 3 then tries to attack Juror 8, shouting, I'll kill him, but is restrained by Jurors 5, 6, and 7. Juror 8 then calmly replies, you don't really mean that you'll kill me, do you? Proving his previous point. Jurors 2 and 6 then change their votes, tying the vote at 6 to 6. Juror 4 doubts the alibi of being at the movies because the accused could not recall it in much detail. Juror 8 tests how well Juror 4 remembers previous days, which he does with difficulty. Juror 2 questions the likelihood that the accused, who was almost a foot shorter than his father, could have inflicted the downward stab wound found on the body. Jurors 3 and 8 then conduct an experiment to see whether a shorter person could stab downwards on a taller person. The experiment proves the possibility But Juror 5, drawing on his experience growing up in a slum, then steps up and demonstrates the correct way to hold and use a switchblade, revealing that anyone skilled with a switchblade, as the boy would be, would always stab underhand at an upwards angle against an opponent who was taller than them, as the grip of stabbing downwards would be too awkward and the act of changing hands too time-consuming. Increasingly impatient, Juror 7 changes his vote to hasten the deliberation, which earns him the ire of the other jurors, especially number 11, for voting frivolously. Still, he insists, unconvincingly, that he actually thinks the defendant is not guilty. Jurors 12 and 1 then change their votes, leaving only three dissenters, jurors 3, 4, and 10. Juror 10 then vents a torrent of condemnation of slum people, claiming that they are no better than the animals who kill for fun. Most of the others turn their backs to him, with Juror 4, the only one still facing him, telling him, sit down and don't open your mouth again. 
When the remaining guilty voters are pressed to explain themselves, Juror Force states that despite all the previous evidence, the woman from across the street who saw the killing still stands as solid evidence. Juror 12 then reverts his vote, making it 8-4. to four. Juror 9, seeing Juror 4 rub his nose, which is being irritated by his glasses, realizes that the woman who allegedly saw the murder had impressions on the side of her nose, indicating that she probably wears glasses, but did not wear them in court out of vanity. Other jurors, including Juror 4, confirmed that they saw the same thing. Juror 8 adds that she would not have been wearing her glasses while trying to sleep, and points out that on her own evidence, the attack happened so swiftly that she wouldn't have time to put them on. Jurors 12, 10, and 4 then change their vote to not guilty, leaving only Juror 3. Juror 3 gives a long and increasingly tortured string of arguments, building on earlier remarks that his relationship with his own son is deeply strained, which is ultimately why he wants the accused to be guilty. He finally loses his temper and tears up a photograph of him and his son. Breaking down, sobbing, he mutters, not guilty, making the vote unanimous. As the jurors leave, Juror 8 helps the distraught Juror 3 with his coat. Outside, Jurors 8 and 9 exchange names, and all of the jurors descend the courthouse steps to return to their individual lives. 12 Angry Men had a budget of $340,000 and brought in over $2 million at the box office. Adjusted for inflation, it's a budget of roughly $3 million and a box office haul of $18 million. The film was nominated for Academy Awards in the categories of Best Director, Best Picture, and Best Writing of an Adapted Screenplay. It lost in all three categories to The Bridge on the River Kwai. Now, let's get into the deliberations because it's time for our feature presentation. Joining us for today's feature presentation is Aaron Tracy. Aaron is a screenwriter. He's a professor of screenwriting at Yale University. And in the capacity where we really came across each other, he is the host of the To Live and Dialogue in L.A. podcast. Aaron, welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And I am sorry I've got some kind of, uh, I don't know, sore throat. Um, I feel totally fine, but I sound like Demi Moore in St. Almost Fire. Well, you'll have to listen to Aaron's show to uh, to understand what he sounds like most of the year round. Um, <laughs> That's right. But uh, yeah, this is a nice complimentary thing. Really, it's Aaron just going out of his way because he just told me that 12 Angry Men, our movie today, was the film that was kind of his sick day movie in his youth. <laughs> yeah. So he's kind enough to get in the mood. And he had jury duty last week. So it's like you're doing all sorts of, uh, you know, nostalgic research. That's right. And the coolest thing about going to jury duty in New York, where I live, is that you literally go to the 12 Angry Men courthouse. Um, It looks exactly the same. It's 60 Center Street uh, downtown. And you show up and it's those famous steps from 12 Angry Men. And you can walk up and walk down and feel like Henry Fonda. Um, and you know, there's that amazing shot when you first walk, um, you know, Sidney Lumet shot from overhead at the beginning of the movie and that's still exactly what it looks like. So it's very, very cool. Now, were you kind enough to get on to a murder trial just to like really (laughs) kind of help, you know, seal the process here? I was somewhere between, you know, praying with everything I had that I would not get selected for a jury so that I can continue my TV writing and also kind of hoping that, you know, I would get the chance to do it because I've never sat on a jury. And uh, Reginald Rose, who wrote 12 Your Men, 
um, I read that, you know, he got the idea from sitting on a really exciting jury, not a surprise. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess I missed that opportunity to have some incredible idea for a movie or TV show. I don't know. I feel like once you would have told the lawyers that, uh, that you're a screenwriter who has uh, kind of a, a specialty <laughs> in legal dramas that they probably would have said, you know what, let's not, uh, let's not <laughs> right. select him for the jury. So they make you fill out a, a questionnaire, um, you know, w- when you're waiting to uh, see if you're going to be called and it asks you, you know, do you have any lawyers in your family? Do you have any preconceived notions about criminals, about the justice system, that kind of thing? And uh, it asks you what you do for a living. And I was, <laughs> I did make sure to put that I, I wrote on Law & Order SVU because I thought that might help disqualify me, um, which I feel guilty about now. Um, but uh, one of my episodes of, of, um, of TV, when I, when I, my Law & Order episode, um, we filmed on those same steps, which was really a highlight for me because, like I said, 12 Angry Men is really one of my all-time favorite movies. And there we are shooting on the exact same steps. I had Mariska Hargitay there right where Henry Fonda was. And that, so that's cool. just such a good feeling. Yeah, that's got to have been pretty surreal. Now, yeah. before we get into 12 Angry Men, I was hoping you could tell a little our audience a little bit about your podcast, To Live in Dialogue in L.A., because I would imagine um, if you're interested in screenwriting, the screenwriting process, writing in general, that, uh, that you might find Aaron's show quite fascinating. Aaron, tell us a little bit about your show. Yeah, it's basically um, each each episode is an hour or so long conversation with a screenwriter or a TV writer. And it's really about craft. So it's about how they write, what they write, when they write, where they write, why they write. And we've had some really terrific guests. We've had... Um, Terrence Winter, who was Oscar nominated for The Wolf of Wall Street and also one of the key writers on The Sopranos and created Boardwalk Empire. Uh, we had Billy Ray, who wrote The Hunger Games and Captain Phillips. Nancy Myers, who's the most successful female writer-director in history. Um, we've got Richard Curtis coming up, who wrote Four Weddings and a Funeral and Love Actually. It's it's just a great opportunity to really sit down with these top, top writers and just sort of, you know, get a sense of of their craft. And so not just, you know, the nuts and bolts of writing, although we do that, but also what their office looks like and what their typical day looks like and where inspiration comes from. And then lots of stories behind the scenes. Um, we had a great conversation with Eleanor Bergstein, who wrote Dirty Dancing, about where that came from. Um, so it's just a, it's a really fun uh, sort of insight into TV and screenwriting for anybody who's interested. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's um, it's a very engaging show. You have fascinating guests, and uh, it makes it all very interesting to get a little bit of insight into that creative process. Now, we're talking about 12 Angry Men, and this is especially apropos to have you on the show, and it wasn't really planned this way um, beforehand, but you wrote a TV show called Sequestered, which is very much an adaptation of 12 Angry Men. Yes. Yeah. Um, I wrote that for uh, Sony's Crackle Network, and we ran two seasons. Um, it was a fun little show. Um, I, you know, my jumping off point for it was I wanted to write a thriller. And, um, you know, like I said, I love the setup for 12 Angry Men. <clears throat> and so I thought, you know, what if we can have – 12 Angry Men, the action show. What would that look like? And so it's, you know, on the one hand, that's a very sort of silly premise. But on the other hand, when you think about it, you still get a lot of the great drama of 12 Angry Men, of jurors 
debating an important case and you add on to it these outside elements of people who are trying to influence the verdict. So um, we had a terrific cast, sorry, Jesse Bradford and Summer Glau. And um, yeah, it's, you know, I think it's still up on on Crackle if anybody wants to check it out. Uh, Please do. So let's get into 12 Angry Men, Aaron. Uh, Right before we started recording, um, I told you that I still, no matter how times, how many times I watch this movie, am on the edge of my seat the entire time. It is, yeah. it is such a suspenseful, just a taut film. And I'm curious, as a writer, as someone who crafts stories, what is it about it to you that makes this film so engaging, so suspenseful for a film that never really leaves one room? How, right. What is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's so many things. Um, I went to see Aaron Sorkin speak last week. Um, who is just always fantastic um, when he speaks in public. And he talked a little bit about To Kill a Mockingbird, which he just adapted for Broadway. And he talked about, in general, how he likes to write courtroom dramas, you know, which he's done a bunch of, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, A Few Good Men, The Social Network. And, you know, it got me thinking about why writing courtroom dramas are so terrific. Um, you know, one reason is the jury, and this is something Sorkin pointed out, the jury doesn't know anything, right, in in any courtroom drama. The lawyers are explaining the facts of the case to the jury, which is incredibly helpful for a writer for exposition. You know, that's how you can get everything out. And in 12 Angry Men, similarly, these jurors, you know, are going over all the facts of the case. So it's just such an easy way to get out exposition. Um, you also have a genuinely, organically diverse group of people. You know, in most dramas, everybody is either, you know, the same race or the same class, the same socioeconomic class. With a jury, you naturally have people of different classes, different walks of life, different professions, people who would never be together in a room otherwise forced together, which is obviously great for conflict. Um, You also have a group that has a tremendous amount of power. I mean, think about how often in life you have a group that actually has power over someone else's life. And it's a rare thing. Um, but here, it's they have literally the most power that any group can be given. They have the power of life or death. You know, if they decide to go guilty, um, as it's explained in the movie a couple times, this defendant is going to get the chair. Um, so you have the great stakes. And then lastly, everyone is forced to be in a confined room. If I were to write a family drama, you know, you would keep asking when they get into a fight, why doesn't the daughter just take off? Why doesn't the father just go into a different room here? They are forced to stay together in a confined room for a confined amount of time. And so it's just, when you put all that together, it is just the perfect setup for drama. And I really think that's a big part of why courtroom dramas work and a big part of why 12 Angry Men works. So I'm, I'm interested in your talk about courtroom dramas because I was struck rewatching the film. Uh, I don't know. I guess it never really occurred to me before um, looking at it through, you know, this lens of talking about it with you that part part of the, you know, what makes this film so engaging to me. And I, I love a good courtroom drama. I love a good police procedural. And this film, you know, 1957, it really manages to combine all of these elements in in kind of unexpected ways where – Normally, yeah. if it's a police procedural, you know, we see the detectives analyzing evidence, um, putting the case together, trying to repiece all the clues. But then once they've done their job, you know, it's just it's in the ether that it goes off to a courtroom somewhere 
or if it's a courtroom drama, you have the lawyers making their arguments. Um, and it's, you know, the drama, the tension is tied up in their battle. But then once the jury goes off and deliberates, right. we, we leave it behind uh, with the tension of, is it going to be guilty or innocent? In this film, we, get, we lose all of that. That's not a part of it at all. But we get both pieces of it, right? They reconstruct this crime in such interesting detail that you get that kind of element of a kind of a detective procedural film. And then you get the arguments between two, you know, conflicting sides in as though it were a courtroom argument, you know, between better lawyers than what apparently existed in the actual case. And right. you have that tension in a way, but it's not at that same time confined by, I think, some of the 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 morals or the restrictions of, well, it's a courtroom, you're going to have objections, Right. These are normal right. people, and they can make whatever argument they want based in you know purely in whatever prejudice they have. So you right. ha- you have all of these elements at play, and the and the jury room is really kind of this brilliant place to let it all out. Yeah, yeah, and I mean Reginald Rose, who wrote the the screenplay, um, he really constructed it as a thriller. So if you you know open up the screenplay, you'll find that something really dramatic happens. You know, just sort of in the classic sense of a thriller, even though it all takes place in in one room. You know, every fifteen pages or so, there's a big turn, and you know whether it's when Henry Fonda you know whips out the switchblade hmm. that he bought. That's exactly like the switchblade that the defendant was accused of using. Um, you know, th- there's there are constant reveals, um, so that it really does feel like a thriller. You know, the movie that that it most reminded me of in a weird way um, when you sort of just take the overview that you're talking about is um, uh, Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino's uh, movie. Interesting. Be- yeah, because what, what that movie did, which was which was so revolutionary at the time, was, was Tarantino said, I've seen a million crime thrillers. What if I try to make a movie that's as exciting as any crime thriller where we never actually see the crime? And that's what Reservoir Dogs is. It's all about the aftermath of the heist. Similarly, here, you spend a grand total of two minutes in the courtroom. All you do is you hear the judge's instructions, and you have a quick shot of the defendant. And then the rest of it is the aftermath of the trial. Um, And I just think that's such an incredible, such a brilliant move uh, by Reginald Rose uh, to really just flip the court and drama on its head. Yeah, you're so right. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I've I've never read the screenplay of uh, Twelve it's Angry Men, so and so it's it's fascinating to see you know hear you say that where you know it's it's paced in such a way that every 15 pages, as you say, you know, you have this kind of uh, some escalation in the suspense into a, into the thriller, and right. I find um, I think of it in terms of what you know, kind of Sidney Lumet does as the director because it's the same, you know, he complements it so well, which is. You do the film is rhythmic in its pacing of this mm-hmm. kind of building of of tension and then a release and then a building and a release and these and he does it so well with kind of his you know you'll get these shots of the whole kind of jury room in a wide angle and sl- yeah. then you'll kind of get the little pairings of medium shots of maybe two people and how what their tension is and it builds and builds until a point that you're usually in an extreme close up in whatever is kind of the moment of release, whether it's, you know, obviously the iconic moments like juror number uh, three, you know, saying I'm going to kill you or the racist tirade of juror number 10. Right. Um, but you have the, the building of the tension, but then 
being able to release it and start over again and then just keep doing that. It, it adds such, um, yeah. as I said, like a rhythmic quality to the film that's it's very satisfying. Oh, it, it really is, yeah. And, you know, rewatching it, <clears throat> those close-ups do work so incredibly well. And I think one of the um, ways that it doesn't feel hokey at all to have all these close-ups is that it's made clear in the script, this is the hottest day of the year in New York. And so all of these close-ups, you are just watching the sweat drip off of these actors and you can just feel how incredibly uncomfortable they are. You can really feel the heat, um, which is, which is an incredible trick by Lumet, but it's also right there in the script. Right. Yeah. I mean, that combination of written word and film is, is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Go on. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I say, you know, I really do feel like it's a thriller, but it's also a character study. Um, Reginald Rose is just a master uh, with character work. So, I mean, you know, w- when I write something, it is pretty hard to write more than, f- let's say, four or five characters and have them all be distinct, you know, all, have them all have v- unique voices. Here, we have 12 jurors. None of them are even given a name. Right. They're just named jurors one through 12. And you literally, if you get, you, you could just isolate one person's line of dialogue and know who was saying it. That's how unique these characters are. Um, We know most of their professions, but other than that, we know almost nothing. We know a tiny, tiny bit about a couple of their home lives, but he's able to sort of give a sense just simply through their dialogue, all taking place in the present, no flash forwards, no flashbacks, just in the present through what they're saying and how they're communicating with each other. We know a tremendous amount about who they are, um, which is, which is just, I mean, until you try it, you sort of don't realize how hard that is. I can't Um, even imagine (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he also, he does a great job of not protecting his characters. You know, I was talking about Aaron Sorkin a little bit before. The West Wing is sort of a famous example of a TV show where every one of the lead characters is a protagonist. None of them are antagonists. Mm. Here, you have several antagonists. And, you know, you you mentioned the sort of bigoted, hateful speech that one of the jurors uh, goes on. Um, several of these characters are completely judgmental, are completely prejudiced or bigoted or hateful, but they're also incredibly human. You know, by the end of the movie, you really understand why our antagonist, Lee J. Cobb, why he is the way he is when he sort of breaks down and, you know, sort of gives that incredible, um, you know, moment of when he rips up the photograph of himself with his son and you really feel the pain that he went through, um, with his son and clearly how he was projecting his own relationship with his son onto this case where a son is accused of killing his father. You really feel for him. Um, which is just not an easy thing to do. You know, most movies have their antagonists, unfortunately, be very one-dimensional. Right. And in this case, no one is one-dimensional. I love his transformation as a character, right? I mean, we meet him on the first kind of go-around of the table, and he's the character who says, you know, all I care about is the facts. Like, you know, and he takes out his book, and it's like, you know, at at 12.10, this happened, 3.10, this happened. You know, he at the beginning, he, you know, tries to portray himself as I am purely fact driven and then as you say you know the final release of his emotional breakdown at the end where we really understand this is about you know his relationship with his son i'm glad you i mean 
of all the close-ups in this film, the moment when he, I mean, I can't even really imagine as an actor, I mean, as you say, this is such a character study film that all of the act, I mean, the acting in this film is unbelievable, but his, yes. that moment, it's a split second of him ripping up that picture in pure anger and immediate regret. Um, right. Oh, uh, it's heartbreaking. You know, he, it's just a, like a whisper of him saying no, that he, you know, immediately regrets ripping up that photo, that that's really, he really probably his only, the only vestige really of his relationship with his son left and he's just destroyed right. it. It's heartbreaking. Right. And, then, and then the moment of him trying to piece it back together, yeah. he realizes what he's done and he tries to put the photo back together and it's just so heartbreaking. Yeah, you're, uh, you're absolutely right. It, you know, and it, there's so much in, I mean, obviously this is, it's such a rich film that you can't help obviously talk. The film foreshadows these things so well. I find the foreshadowing, I mean, you know, in any good, I feel like any good kind of mystery, right? Where you plant the seeds for the audience to, uh, to kind of, you know, get there hopefully a second before even the film so that they feel really great about themselves. Um, and right, it, yeah, early on, Lee J. Cobb has that speech where he talks about, you know, I got a son and uh, I was going to, you know, make sure that he became a man. When he was nine years old, he ran away for, from a fight and I almost threw up. I was so embarrassed. Right. So I made a man out of him. And, and yeah, that you almost, you know, you wonder if that's going to go anywhere because it might just be Reginald's way of just elucidating his character. But of course, we find out that it is the most central fact about him. And since he's our lone holdout in the end, it becomes the, the, the most central fact of the movie. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, what I find is also very interesting about this film is, you know, thematically, actually, how it transforms uh, Cobb's character throughout the film into, you know, a, kind of the metaphorical or symbolic son. I mean, he, here he is, the tortured father. And throughout the film, right, I mean, I think of the, sta- the, the mock stabbing scene where right. he, has to, uh, he has to physically make himself smaller than Henry Fonda's character and take the role of the son killing the father. Um, right. And then, you know, so he, here he is as he's kind of miniaturized himself before the man he's arguing against taking the role of the of the son and then you know you have the breakdown at the end the way kind of Henry Fonda's character helps him put on his jacket i mean like the, there's to me yeah. a very interesting father son dynamic between these two characters in this film about this hatred that's fueled in the father son dynamic that's interesting i had never thought about that before that is interesting um yeah i mean what i just kept thinking about is you know the way that uh, you know, this case is mirroring his life, um, which makes sense. You know, whenever one of Reginald's points, I think I, I feel funny calling him Reginald. I'm going to call him Rose. Um, <laughs> one of Rose's points, I think, is that, um, you know, whenever any of us are in a group dynamic, we can't help but bring our own personal baggage with us. Right. Um, you know, the reason that the sort of antagonists in this movie are antagonists is because they're bringing their prejudices with them, their closed mindedness. And so, you know, in this case, Lee J. Cobb is bringing, you know, his relationship with his son to this. So if Lee J. Cobb is forced to vote not guilty in this case, then he sort of lets the boy get away with what he's done, what he believes he's done to his father. And of course, in that case, that means that Lee Jacob sort of metaphorically is letting his own son off the hook for what, for the pain that he caused him. 
Um, and, and that's just so brilliantly done. It's not, it doesn't hit you over the head with it. It lets you sort of work that out for yourself. Um, and it, it, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just breathtaking. Yeah. Now for fear of, you know, making it all about Henry Fonda and Cobb's character. I mean, the other characters in this film obviously are so pivotal. Um, I mean, you can almost go around the table and spend lengthy amounts of time discussing what the, you know, what each character brings, but I find interesting, you know, kind of the, the dualities and the juxtapositions between these characters, which, you know, kind of provide this, I mean, very rich, you know, both a rich room of characters, which we, we've, we've talked about, um, but as well as kind of dealing with the themes of the film. I love the kind of contrast between um, juror number seven, our, our baseball attending fan, who's just desperate to get out of the room. And Jack, he gives, I think, my favorite performance. He gives such it? a perfect performance of that jerk who, yeah, just absolutely wants to, you know, sort of talk trash to everybody and just get to his baseball game and doesn't care about anything else in the world. Yeah. And then, um, then of course, it's juror number 11 and the, the tension that, that they have, right? I mean, this the moment where juror seven flips his vote to not guilty. And the only reason is because, you know, like, let's get out of here. And the contrast, and then you really start to get to the themes of kind of democracy and and the role of yeah. you know the jury room and and this responsibility we have i mean that's such a poignant moment it's perhaps maybe the where the film gets most heavy-handed as well the speech of you know kind of um the importance of democracy and you know we have this eastern right. european character who obviously has lived through other forms of government you know kind of singing its praises but yeah the tension I- there is is palpable it is. It is. You know, I don't know. Um, did you rewatch the movie before this? Of course. Yeah. So I rewatched it this morning um, on the train uh, up to New Haven and was absolutely shocked at the contemporary relevance. It's just, you know, as you said, this movie is from 1957, but this very much felt like it was written in response to Donald Trump. You know, we're living in an in an era right now where the president, where a lot of our top officials are asking us to believe that what we see with our own eyes is not true. And this movie is about pushing past prejudices to uncover the truth. That's really what it's about in the end. You know, the the Lee J. Cobb character, um, the other Ed Bagley's character, it's about forcing them to see beyond this Puerto Rican defendant who grew up in a slum and um, actually examine the facts of the case. Um, and it's, it's just, it absolutely could be written, you know, next year in response to Trump. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's an excellent point. Obviously, you know, in part, what makes this film so timeless is it kind of cuts to the core of our, you know, our moral leanings, our, our ideologies and all of these things. You mentioned, you know, that this is a film about getting to the facts. Um, and it, you know, it, to me draws in contrast, then the, the scene towards the end, I mean, that you have kind of. Cobb, a juror number three, and E.G. Marshall as juror number four, as kind mm-hmm. of the last two real holdouts in many ways. And they, I think they represent you know, the flip side of the same coin, where Cobb obviously so emotionally invested in his desired outcome. And Marshall, who thinks of himself purely as like a logical and fact-driven man. And so it's really right. Henry Fonda's ability to try and convince <clears throat> both of these people um, and the scene, of course, when he convinces Marshall of his interrogation of what movie he saw. And again, it's what you talked about earlier with Lumet's ability to kind of convey the heat. That camera just comes in closer 
mm-hmm. and closer to Marshall's face. We've already established that he doesn't sweat right. until the questioning gets going. And he has nothing on the line, but that little bead of sweat forms. I and, love that. And we know it's over for him. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's so well done. Um, the fact that, you know, Henry Fonda, you sort of know from the beginning that he's eventually going to sway all other, all the 11 other jurors to his point of view, to not guilty. And so in many ways, you know, if I was pitching this, um, the executive would say, how the hell is that going to be interesting? We, we know that our hero character is going to sway each one of them. So what? We're going to watch him sway number two and then number three and then number four. It's going to be so boring. But Rose's brilliance in part is that he comes up with a completely different way to sway each juror. Right. So as you say with Marshall, who's just, you know, he's, he's painted as this guy who, you know, is sort of um, not swayed by emotion. He's very matter of fact. Um, he's got to be convinced by the facts. And so Henry Fonda really does convince him with the facts of the case. And then with um, Lee J. Cobb, who's the next one he's got to convince, it's all emotion. And, you know, we could go down the line and come up with the way he convinces each of these jurors. And each one has a very different way of being swayed. And that way of being swayed is inherent to who their character is. Um, which just makes the whole thing feel so well plotted out, so smart. You really feel the author's voice behind the movie in in sort of the best way possible. Yeah, I, I've always struck. I, I think I don't know, one of the first times I saw this movie, I was always struck the moment when um, juror number seven, who we already talked about, you know, he leaves the room after an argument, and mm-hmm. I think it's uh, juror. Tw- uh, nine is trying to say something, and, and Henry Fonda says to him, "You know, don't he can't hear you, and he never will." Um, right. I and love I, that. And I was always like, you know, I struck, but I think probably I've never seen it before. Well, obviously we're going to have to convince him somehow. So he's, how are you, how is he going to hear it? And, but he never does. Right. I mean, he is the character who, you know, as you say, every character is convinced by the means that really speaks to who they are. And he's just outlasted. He just doesn't want to <sighs> right. wait anymore. And I love talking again about that tension between juror 11 and seven because juror 11 flips his vote and someone asks him to explain himself. And he Mm -hmm. says, I don't have to explain myself to you. Like I've analyzed the situation and I'm changing my vote. And then, but he asked juror seven then when he flips his vote, like, how can you change your vote? And it's because he knows that like no real logic has gone into it whatsoever. And he can't stand that kind of uh, lack of, you know, moral (laughs) strength or scruples or whatever you want to say about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, the movie is very high minded in that way. It really, you know, it, it champions, um, you know, sort of, um, group, excuse me, it champions groups being able to work together for the common good. Um, you know, I'm not sure that always works out in real life. So this is sort of an idealistic version of what, you know, the best possible sort of group dynamic could be. Um, but you know, the, the way that, uh, the way that each character really does feel like, um, at heart, they want the system to work you know, by the end of the movie, of course, is just so incredibly well done. Yeah. Um, you know, you made me think also of, uh, what was really one of my favorite moments, which I, I didn't really remember from previous watchings, which was, I forget which juror it was, but the one who is, um, a construction worker right. and he's in the bathroom with Henry Fonda and he's got this great line where, uh, Henry Fonda says, you know, suppose something or other. 
And the construction worker turns back on him and he says, well, supposing isn't really my bag. You know, my foreman does the supposing, <laughs> but uh, I'll give it a shot. How about this? Supposing you talk us all out of it. And this kid really did murder his father. And it's such a powerful moment because you realize Henry Fonda might be completely wrong. You know, Henry Fonda never says he's sure that this kid didn't kill his father. All he's saying is he thinks there's a reasonable doubt. And, you know, as the audience, we have to wonder at times, what if this kid really is guilty and, you know, goes off and kills someone else because they, you know, they, they let him go here. And so I just, I, I love that because it's, it takes away a little bit of sort of the, the high horse that Henry, Henry Fonda is on and, yeah. you know, sort of really shows that, you know, he may be imperfect too, and he may be allowing a killer to go free, uh, to go free as possible. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a, it's a line that cuts right to your heart, obviously, like anyone watching is like, well, yeah, you know, we're, we immediately kind of align ourselves with Henry Fonda uh, being, right. you know, he's the hero that you, you don't necessarily take a moment to stop and say, well, yeah, what if, what if the guy is guilty? I find it interesting that that particular scene, you know, it happens, uh, you know, quote unquote, outside the jury room, it's in the bathroom. Right. And I, I think it, it, I don't know. I, it, that line trips me up because to me it cuts to a, a question. And I think Henry Fonda, obviously he accepts that that's a possibility, but his ability to move on and the fact that it's never really raised per se in the, in the, you know, the battle uh, that ensues is that right, that we need to prove that he's guilty. We don't need to prove that he's innocent. Right. And that is, you know, it's, it's, He's flipping, you know, juror, I think it's juror, well, whatever, six, I think. Uh, I always just use the table of where they're sitting as <laughs> in relation right, to everyone. Right, right. I think you're right. I think he is six, yeah. Um, which is fa so fascinating, right, that these characters are kind of given somewhat in their identities about where they are in relation to other characters. But Yeah, yeah. Um, that his, you know, that he, <clears throat> it's a distortion of the whole purpose of them there, right? That, you know, it's you can get so caught up in making sure a guilty man doesn't go free that you forget that that's the burden of proof is to, you know, actually prove that they're guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Um, yeah. I mean, definitely as I was rewatching it, there was an element of rooting for Henry Fonda to win simply because several of the other characters were so close minded and prejudice. And so in that situation, you kind of feel like he could have been arguing anything. <laughs> he could have been arguing Coke versus Pepsi. You just wanted him to win right. because everyone else was so close-minded. And that's problematic, right? Because it's not about Coke versus Pepsi. It's about whether or not someone committed murder. Right. And so you really want to be on the on his side because he's got the facts on his side. Yeah. And I think by the end of the movie, we can all agree he absolutely does. He's poked holes in every one of the prosecution's witnesses. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, in... In, in the way that this movie is a metaphor for how all groups work together, I think it's just something to be careful of, that you never want to lose sight of the fact that it's very easy to root for an underdog, the man who's out there standing all by himself. Um, you always want to be cognizant of what the actual facts are that you're debating. Yeah. I love uh, you bringing up, you know, the man who stands all by himself, because there are a few moments that always stand out to me in this movie. And I'm always amazed, you know, we talked early on about kind of the physical space, you know, they're in this, what's clearly a super cramped room, and you just feel the claustrophobia kind of setting in. Right. But I love how they kind of make the most of the space where you have, 
to me, almost kind of layers of, of, of kind of physical space, which is the table itself where you have these, where the arguments take place, you have the building up of that tension mm-hmm. and you kind of have the, the perimeter of the room as kind of the, the reflective space where characters are constantly stepping out from the table and removing themselves to the perimeter, almost as if just to breathe for a second. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of, you know, talking about those escalations, obviously Henry Fonda very much by himself for the early part of this movie. But the two moments that always stand out to me are the two moments when I think our most hateful antagonists um, find themselves completely alone. The, uh, to me, frankly, the, the first one I think is the one that happens first and it's extremely powerful is the moment after Cobb says, I'm going to kill you to Henry Fonda. And, you know, they, the two men have to be separated. And it's the first time we have 11 men standing on one side of the room with Henry Fonda and Cobb yeah. completely by himself in the foreground. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you almost are like, how did we get ourselves into this situation? It just escalates so quickly. And right. the other the choreography one, is perfect. The yeah. choreography is perfect. The other one, which happens much more slowly and makes, I think, much more of a profound statement is, of course, when Ed Begley as juror number 10 is in the midst of his most racist tirade and every character just removes themselves right. from that situation until he is completely alone. Even, you know, even Cobb, right? I mean, even as someone who's so invested in the outcome, he has emotional reasons, but he's not a racist. Um, right. And, and right. In, in the way they kind of put juror 10 by himself saying like, this is its own issue. Um, right. and, and then from that point on the rest of the movie, he's completely isolated in the corner. He's exiled. Yeah. It's a beautiful metaphor for exiling, you know, that kind of hateful person from society. Um, I think the only person who stays at the table is E.G. Marshall. And that's, you know, just because that character, E.G. Marshall, he's not, he's not a passionate guy. He's not someone who would get up and leave, right. but instead he turns to, um, Bagley and he says, sit down and don't open your mouth again. Yeah. And it's, oh, oh you just, you're, you're like all of a sudden E.G. E. Marshall was, was very much a, a, one of our antagonists, but now you're completely on his side. You're like, yes, he knows right from wrong. Yeah. Um, and it's just so well done. Um, uh, you know, you made me think, uh, when you were talking about the table, uh, <laughs> you know, in many ways, this film does feel a little bit like, a, a you know, a, we, we've called it a thriller. It's also a little bit like an action movie. You know, the way that they dance around this table and some characters are held back from fighting others and some characters, you know, you know, sort of walk around the table to opposite ends when they're in a fight, um, the table being the main set piece. And as the movie ends, I was really struck by the fact that uh, Lumet allows his, char- has, allows his camera to, you know, let us see all of the characters walk out. Mm-hmm. And then when the final character, Henry Fonda, has walked out the door – Instead of walking out with him, the camera then pans slowly over the table to see exactly what we've gone through over the past hour and a half. You know, all the torn up pieces of paper, the empty coffee cups, the uh, cigarettes. And it's it was a it's a really strange choice. Um, But I think you're you know, you're right that that table was so important to everything that our characters just went through. It symbolizes their battle. Um, And so it's worth just hovering over for five seconds or whatever it is. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. There's, you know, I think a select few moments, 
you know, I think what makes Lumet such an you know interesting film. He's not a um, he's not a filmmaker who necessarily draws a tremendous amount of attention to the craft of filmmaking, but he picks his moments very well, right? You know, as you say, it's a very poetic pan across the table as kind of the the battlefield is left after the, right. you know. And there's just a select few moments. I mean, there's obviously the moments of kind of those extreme close-ups and the building of that tension. But there's, you know, those few moments where he kind of really emphasizes the mood of the scene. And I think there's the, the few that jump out to me are after, you know, in one of the moments of release, after one of the big moments of tension, I forget which one it is, but all of a sudden that room is very dark. And you mm. feel the mood of that room being very dark. But then, you know, it's juror number one, the, fo- the foreman who goes and flips the lights back on and we're able to continue. And then right. specifically then when in that scene with the, you know, kind of inquiry about juror number four's movie going experience, the rain outside gets louder and louder as we push in um, into that tension. Or there's a moment of silence once juror seven has finally gotten that fan to work. And now all we can hear is the fan cutting the silence. Right. Um, it's those that. moments that are just like, Ooh, they hit. Home. Yeah. Um, there's, there's sort of a truism in writing that creativity can come from limits, not from complete expanse. You know, if you want to create something, you know, that's really interesting, really creative, then you want to, um, you know, put some limitations on it because if, you know, if you're just writing about anything and everything, you know, the canvas is just too, too, too big. Um, similarly here with Sidney Lumet directing, you know, and it, it's just shocking that this is his first movie, but being forced to set the entire thing in one room forces him to be creative in a way that he might not have been if the canvas had been, you know, if his canvas had been the world. Yeah. So just being in the room, what, what are the things he can play with? He can play with the lighting. He can play with the heat. He can play with the different sides of the table. He can play with whether or not the fan goes on or off. Um, and, and he is just masterful with each of those elements because he had so little else to play with. And it, it really did feel like it allowed him to flourish creatively. Yeah. And I think an awareness on his part from what I've read, you know, he really wanted, he understood that the lack of, of, I don't know, access to other things was part of what was going to drive this movie. So, you know, I think in the, in pre-production they had thought about, you know, justifying the, um, the jurors room as being in the basement. So you would have all these kind of exposed pipes and things like that. And he Mm -hmm. was, you know, to add a little bit more dramatic flourish. And he was like, no, this is going to be a normal room. And the other big one is they wanted to put a glass, uh, you know, have a glass version of the table so that you could have all sorts of evocative shots from underneath the table or the middle of the table, um, and he's, you know, we're not, this is, he, he uses his camera to great effect, but not, it never, you know, kind of violates the realism of the room. Um, right. you know, the, That's interesting. the camera always must kind of fit into that physical space in a logical way. And he right. does, I love how he puts the camera so frequently behind characters so that they're in the foreground and we're seeing whoever they're arguing with in the background, you know, yes. it, it never, it's, it's hyper-realistic, and I think that's what – it makes you feel like you're in that room too. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know a tremendous amount about cinematography, um, but I, I really recommend Sidney Lumet's book, Making Movies, yeah. which is just all about his process in a really nuts and bolts way. It's it's a, it's an easy, quick read and just so elucidating. Um, but some, you know, DPs that I've worked with talk about this movie with such reverence because, you know, the the choices that, uh, that Lumet makes, um, along with his cinematographer, um, uh, just as you're saying about, you know, who's in the foreground and who's in the background and, you know, I, I believe most shots in the second half of the movie are shot from under, you know, the, the sort of the classic hero shot mm-hmm. um, in a, as a way to sort of open up the movie a little bit and, and you know, sort of give the um, give the sort of impression of us um, moving a little bit faster as we move toward the end. Um, it's just so brilliantly done. Now, I, w- I want to get your thoughts on one last thing. I feel like we've covered a lot of the major um the major thrust of this movie, yeah. but I'm always, I'm increasingly interested by juror number 12, our ad agency man. Yeah. Um, cause He's I, great. I find, you know, in the writing, that's where the film really, I think, you know, brings in a little bit of satire into the, into the film. Mm-hmm. I think it's in many, I mean, we obviously we, juror number 11 has his great speech about the value of democracy, but it's juror number 12 where I think you really have kind of, a little bit of a statement on what's going on kind of culturally in the United States, aside from all of this, what do you make of juror number 12? Is it, <laughs> is it, is he there for kind of a little bit of comedic relief or is it, is there a little more going on? I think definitely there's some comedic relief for sure. Um, you know, it's interesting watching it, you know, post Mad Men when we all now have yes. this, you know, figure this very distinct image of what advertising guys in the fifties were like in New York. I mean, this guy basically is, you know, someone Don Draper would have worked with. Yeah. Um, but y- you know, in the fifties, there was this image of the man in the gray flannel suit, um, which in fact, Lee J. Cobb calls juror number 12 at one moment. Um, and you know, I, I think you're right that it's, that's Rose making fun of this guy because, you know, these guys, oftentimes fancied themselves as creatives and sometimes they were absolutely, but a lot of times they really weren't. And Rose of course is, you know, coming from Hollywood and and from playwriting and is sort of the ultimate creative. And so there very well may have been a little bit of professional jealousy there. How dare these, you know, these new hot ad guys who are making all, all this money and, you know, sort of on top of the world, how dare they sort of call themselves creatives? Um, you know, there's a great moment when uh, juror number 12, you know, uh, is sort of telling a joke to uh, juror number one about how, you know, uh, in an ad meeting, a lot of times uh, an- another ad man will start a pitch by saying, well, uh, let's uh, put this up the flagpole and see if anybody salutes. And it's meant to just show the the absurdity of, of people in that business. Yeah. Um, yeah, I you know I definitely laughed out loud a couple times with his lines, um, and just how incredibly wishy washy he was, uh, going back and forth between guilty and not guilty. Yeah, he felt a little bit like comic relief, but he also felt, you know, incredibly real. I think incredibly. there are a lot of people like that who you know want to be creatives, want to be writers, um, but you know haven't for some reason maybe because like this guy, they're more drawn to the the riches and the wealth and the status of of um, Madison Avenue. Yeah, I think you you make a great point, which is you know it's almost surprising, but he is the only juror to flip flop more than once. You know, it's everyone else's. They go from guilty to innocent or not guilty, and he's the only one who will go back and forth more than once. And there is mm-hmm. he is something you know so uh, a, a lack of conviction at, at, or yeah. you know sureness 
I there's love, no substance to him. There, just like, yeah, you know, exactly. the classic version of the gray, the man in the gray flannel suit, the ad man. Yeah. Just no substance, all flash. Yeah. I mean, I love, I, I mean, it makes me laugh every time, as you say, that line about saluting. <laughs> if anyone will give it a salute. Um, and of course, he's he, so pleased with himself when he tells that story. That's, yeah, and, that's but, part of it. And, yeah. and of course, he's saying it like, oh, I always get a kick out of when other ad guys do this kind of silly thing. And then, of course, later in the movie, he does it himself, you know, with like, let's put this out on the stoop and see if the cat licks it up. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then never, never goes on to make the point that he was going to make Ex- before saying Exactly. That. Never makes a point <laughs> afterwards. Right. Um, but I do love, I mean, one of his moments, you know, the big f- kind of final um, evidence moment involving the glasses and the old lady. Again, I love that detail of, you know, it's the moment when he's kind of being convinced to vote not guilty over the glass. And, but we haven't gotten yet to the glasses. And of course it's a conversation between him and juror number four, juror number four, who's been wearing his glasses the whole time. And juror number 12, who's constantly taking hymns on and off. And he's, you know, puts them on very pointedly in this scene. And you, you know, you know, after the fact when you're rewatching, but when you're watching it again, that kind of subconscious influence that we're building towards this big reveal involving glasses, um, That's smart. It's so poetic. I, I, I mean, there, you've never seen more glasses than in that conversation. <laughs> um, right. But I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Watching it this time, I, I really did find um, that character you're talking about, E.G. Marshall, um, to be so incredibly important to the storytelling in a way that maybe I didn't realize on previous watches because you're so consumed by Henry Fonda versus Lee J. Cobb. But watching it this time, you know, that moment when um, E.G. Marshall um, finally admits that the woman who testified um, had sort of little indents on her nose and therefore must have, um, you know, had glasses and chose not to wear them to court and certainly would have would not have worn them when she heard a scream in the middle of the night and looked out the window. When he realizes that that all means that her testimony must now be called into question is such an important moment because he has proven himself to be smart and logical and not swayed by emotion. And it's so important for Henry Fonda, not just to win over the bigots and the people who are just ruled by their own emotions, but to actually win over someone who's ruled by logic. Right. And when he does that, you just feel like, okay, Henry Fonda, you deserve this. You deserve this win. It totally. And and I also appreciate as you said earlier about, you know, characters are convinced in a manner that is appropriate to who they are that yeah. juror number 4 is not so emotionally caught up. His ego is not tied to this result in such a way that he's now going to be like, well, I don't know, you know, did she right. wear glasses? He immediately is like, you know what, you're right. She had glasses. He is fact-driven until the end even if it means he's wrong. Right. And yeah, he's completely. not afraid to admit it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, so Rose adapted this a few times. Um, you know, originally Rose wrote this for TV. Um, he was, he was one of the all time great TV writers, by the way, Reginald Rose back in sort of the first, um, golden age of television. It was, it was him and it was Patty Chayefsky and a couple other people like Rod Serling who were writing these searing moral dramas, uh, for Playhouse 90 and yeah. Um, you know, studio one, and you know Marty maybe being the the greatest example, um, but also Twelve Angry Men, yeah. and then Rose adapted it for the stage. Um, I've seen it on the stage. It doesn't to me anyway. It doesn't have the same impact. Um, you know, partly because Lumet's camera is so important yeah. to this story. You know, the confinement of the room when you see it on a big Broadway stage, it just it has too much room to breathe. Mm-hmm. You really need this to be you know in a in a confined area. Yeah. 
Um, and then uh, I think it was about 11 years or so after it aired on TV, Rose adapted it for this film. Um, and it's, you know, that's a, that's a very rare thing and a very exciting thing for a writer to have written something that can work in so many different forms that he's asked to adapt into so many different forms. I believe he got the Emmy for the TV show and got nominated for an Oscar for the movie. Yeah. I mean, that's such a rare, incredible thing. <laughs> it's the, it's the, the writing dream right there. Yeah, yeah. seriously. Um, yeah, it's amazing. If he was around today, maybe it would have started as a podcast, but like there are no other forms that it can really go into. 12 Angry Men, the true crime podcast. I think that would be very, <laughs> yeah, very I'd listen to that. Who wouldn't? Um, and then it brings us, I'm always, there's something so poetic in the ending of this film, finally leaving that room. And I don't know if it's just, you know, the being trained by Hollywood all these years, but when, uh, Henry Fonda and Sweeney at the end, jurors eight and nine, uh, say goodbye to each other. They finally, you know, say their names. You know, as you said, they've been nameless this entire time. Yeah. You know, you almost want them to be like, well, you know, do you want to get, you want to get a cup of coffee or like, <laughs> you, know, you almost feel like there's a friendship brewing here, but right. no, like, you know, they just go their separate ways. And that is what this whole process is. Right. And it just hits it home so hard at the end where it's just like, 12 people who couldn't have less in common come together with the biggest responsibility and then with no, in theory, no personal investment in it. And then they just go their separate ways. And it, I, to me, it's such a, it's such a, a good release at the end. I couldn't agree more. I I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, it's interesting that he picked that Rose picked those two characters to introduce themselves to each other at the end on the courthouse steps. Um, you know, they were very much, the first compatriots in the room, you know, the old man was the first one to come to Henry Fonda's side and vote not guilty. Um, and I think you're right. I think the reason that they introduce themselves and give their names. And as far as I can tell, there's no greater significance to the names they give. It's not like it, it suddenly reveals their ethnicity or it suddenly reveals something that we didn't know before. It's more just, it forces the audience to become aware of the fact that these people were just sitting in a room for all this time, battling it out. I mean, just like an epic battle for the ages, literally deciding the life or death of someone else. And they didn't even know each other's names. Right. It's just such a beautiful thing. Oh man. I love this movie. I'm, uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that it was uh, on your list of, of films that you were excited to yeah. talk about. Cause as soon as I saw it, I was like, all right, we got to do this. Um, and I, by the way, if you're, if you're out there and you're interested in acquiring it, I watched this film on Criterion. They've got, you know, Blu-ray of it, Criterion, and it's, uh, it looks fantastic. Oh, cool. It's uh, also, I watched it, um, it's on Amazon Prime right now. So even better. Amazon Prime, Don't spend the money. Watch, watch it for free. I mean, free, yeah. as long as you subscribe. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm still getting your money. But, uh, Aaron, it's been such a pleasure talking about it. I oh, hope, it's really fun. I hope people check out your show to live in dialogue in LA because, uh, uh, it was your episode on Paul Atanasio. Uh, it was such yeah. a great I- interview. I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, oh, great. So I yeah, thank you Paul's for coming the on the show. Yeah, no, this was incredibly fun. Let's do it again. Yes, please. That concludes our episode on 12 Angry Men. I would love to hear what you think of this classic movie must. Feel free to tweet at Movie Musts Pod or email Classic Movie Musts at gmail.com. Listen to all our episodes on our website, classicmoviemust.com. You can support the show and receive cool perks on Patreon, like becoming a producer of the show 
and get your name read at the end of every episode, just like Don Hoffman Lee, Eleanor B., and Max Henri did. Thank you all for your generous patronage. Check out all our support tiers and their rewards over at patreon.com slash classic movie musts. On the next episode, we're discussing Roman Polanski's Chinatown. Remember, episodes release every Friday on all podcast services. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next episode, keep up with your classics. 